Hello, and welcome to the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast, brought to you by the North Carolina Sustainable Energy Association. I'm your host, Matt Abel. Hello, Squeaky Clean listeners. Welcome to the 57th episode of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast, where we bring you the latest in North Carolina clean energy news, policy, and more every two weeks. For today's episode, we've got two very special guests who you've probably heard of and from before. Our first, through her writing on various clean energy topics throughout North Carolina and the Southeast, and our second has been on multiple episodes of the podcast in the past, and is a well-recognized voice if you're a member of NCSEA. Today, we're providing a recap of HB 951, some of the latest developments down at the legislature, and what the future holds for the bill. So if you're at all interested in energy policy in North Carolina, then this episode's for you. Before we talk with our guests, though, we've got a few updates to share with the group. First up, two new notable coalitions focusing on clean energy in North Carolina and the Southeast have popped up in the past couple of weeks. The first group is the Offshore Wind for North Carolina Coalition, which is comprised of Audubon NC, Chambers for Innovation and Clean Energy, Environmental Defense Fund, Environmental Entrepreneurs, North Carolina Coastal Federation, North Carolina Conservation Network, the North Carolina League of Conservation Voters, the North Carolina Sustainable Energy Association, Sierra Club North Carolina, and the Southeastern Wind Coalition. This group is laser focused on helping North Carolina achieve Governor Cooper's goal of 2.8 gigawatts of offshore wind energy by 2030 and 8 gigawatts by 2040. The other coalition is called the Southeast Electric Transportation Regional Initiative, which is focused on accelerating EV market expansion, as the name would imply, across the Southeast. This new coalition includes nearly 60 EV manufacturing, EV charging service providers, supply chain companies, electric utilities, fleet managers, academic institutions, clean cities coalitions, government agencies, and nonprofit organizations. The group intends to accelerate regional electric transportation growth by supporting fact-based policies and actions in the southeastern states that advance the electric vehicle market and associated infrastructure in the region. And as another reminder, NCSEA will be hosting the last of its Making Energy Work webinars on October 27th with a legislative recap from this year's long session and a preview of what's to come in future policy conversations here in the state. This webinar is sponsored by Pinegate Renewables and Kairos Government Affairs. To register for the free webinar, visit makingenergywork.com. And lastly, some exciting news coming out of Wilmington here recently. North Carolina-based Live Oak Bank has announced they've provided more than $1 billion in renewable energy financing for solar and bioenergy projects in rural communities nationwide. Live Oak Bank is the largest U.S. Department of Agriculture lender in the country. Their team was actually recognized as a clean energy champion last year during the annual Conservatives for Clean Energy and Chambers for Innovation in Clean Energy event. We're so excited to have Live Oak Bank right here in our backyard. So last episode, we spent some time with our guest, Brianna Estevez, talking about the business community's perspective on HB 951 and some of the concerns they raised in a letter to the legislature earlier this summer. Today, we're taking a step back and looking at the bill from a 40,000-foot perspective to get a better sense of what's included in the new version recently released, where it currently stands in the legislature, the perspectives of various stakeholders, 
and what's set to happen if and when the governor signs the latest version. And to help us with the conversation are our next two guests who know this topic better than anyone else. Clean energy. Our first guest is based in Raleigh and covers the state's clean energy transition for the Energy News Network and has done so since 2016. She also produces features for Environmental Health News and the Southeast Journal, the news magazine of the Society of Environmental Journalists. A former communications director for the nonprofit Environment America, our guest brings over two decades of environmental and energy policy experience to her reporting. Friends of the pod, please welcome Elizabeth Oots, reporter with Energy News Network. Elizabeth, welcome to the pod. Yeah, thanks for having me. Our next guest is a well-recognized voice to many listeners and needs no introduction, but we'll give her one anyway. With over two decades of government, campaign, and nonprofit experience in Raleigh and Washington, D.C., our second guest has worked for elected officials at the highest leadership levels in the U.S. Congress and North Carolina General Assembly and now serves as the principal of Robinson Consulting Group. Please welcome Julie Robinson back to the pod. Julie, welcome to the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast. Great to be with both of you. All right, so let's jump into it. So in some previous episodes, we've provided a short background of the Comprehensive Energy Bill, HB 951, that's been working its way through the legislature here in North Carolina, um, resulting out of a closed-door stakeholder process early on in the legislative session. Well, as our listeners may know now, uh, there's been a lot of news surrounding this bill as of late, even making national headlines. Uh, So to start things off, Julie, can you give us a quick recap of the journey this bill has taken and where it currently stands? (laughs) Oh boy. Um, (laughs) We may need a cocktail or a psychiatrist couch (laughs) to recap all of that. Um, It's definitely been uh, what seems like a very, very, very long year. Um, You know, just to to recap, for all your listeners, um, you know, Elizabeth and I and and many, many others have been following this actual bill, House Bill 950, since it was introduced back in early May. Um, But uh, I'm sure... You know, followers of the podcast and NCSEA members and and others that have been engaged on these important issues um, also know that, um, you know, it started well before the actual piece of legislation was introduced in Raleigh at the legislature. Um, You know, like you said, there was there was months of a a smaller stakeholder process that uh, House Republican leadership led kind of from the beginning of this year up until uh, the bill actually being introduced in the House. But it really goes back, you know, almost two years, um, almost to the date now, um, when Governor Cooper first issued Executive Order 80 back in uh, October of 2018. And then that kicked off, you know, what turned out to be almost a year-long process um, that the North Carolina Department of Environmental Quality and, you know, several uh, energy expert organizations um, like the Nicholas Institute at Duke University, Rocky Mountain Institute, and and other regional and national experts convened, you know, a very large, robust, diverse stakeholder process um, that met for, like I said, almost a year, um, continuing through COVID 
last year that uh, resulted in the state's first clean energy plan. Um, so a lot of these same issues have been discussed for you know two or three years now and um, really served as kind of a, a basis of, of what you know became just in the last week or so um, the newer version of House Bill 951. One of the more recent moves related to the bill was the introduction of a new version as part of an agreement between the governor and legislative leaders back on October 1st. Um, So, Elizabeth, can you tell us a little bit more about what's included in the new version of this bill that was recently released about a week or so ago? Absolutely. Um, And as I think your listeners know, the original version that passed the House is about 49 pages and pretty widely scorned, I would say. A lot of detractors from lots of different perspectives did not care for that bill. Um, So this one has been whittled down from 49 pages to just 10, and it has four main parts. Um, The first would codify Governor Cooper's clean energy goals. Um, So it requires the Utilities Commission to develop a plan to cut um, carbon emissions from the electricity sector by 70% compared to 2005 levels um, within the next decade. And then it also requires um, Duke to be carbon neutral by 2050. Um, So it it codifies those goals and then tasks the Utilities Commission with coming up with a plan to meet that. That would be due at the end of next year. And then it gets updated as needed every two years. Um, That plan has to be um, quote-unquote, the least cost pathway. It has to maintain reliability and adequacy. Um, and on the solar side, solar projects, solar plus storage projects, 55% of those would be owned by Duke, and the rest could be owned by independent power producers. Um, and very notably, big concession to Duke in this in this new compromise is that everything else um, developed under this carbon plan has to be owned by Duke. So wind, um, and especially important for those wanting innovation, wanting competition to drive innovation, um, battery storage technology could also be owned by Duke. But again, everything. Um, so that was a pretty big concession. Um, the other big concession to Duke is the multi-year rate-making section, which um, is very similar to the House passed version. So it, um, it it is permissive. It allows the Utilities Commission to grant this uh, multi-year rate-making performance-based rate-making regime um, or, or an application that Duke might make. Um, it can only last for three years. Um, it limits the amount of increases in year two and three to 4%. Um, it decouples the residential electricity use sales. Um, and it allows the utility to overearn by half a percentage point um, before it would have to refund any money to customers. But if it under-earns by even a penny, they get to call the whole thing off and um, ask for a rate case. Um, there is one, even though, you know, I think most people still, and we'll get to concerns at, uh, later in the podcast, but, um, you know, most people see, see this as a big concession to Duke and a big win for Duke. But I think it's also important to note that 
um, one change from the House version is that the Utilities Commission can now modify that application that Duke may make. And so they don't just have to, before they either had to accept or reject it, now they can modify any part of it. Um, and so I think that a lot of people are confident or hopeful at least that the commission will not, um, you know, give Duke the moon on that stuff. Um, the third section of the bill, the third main part of the bill authorizes the commission to initiate rulemaking that would allow securitization of um, coal plant retirement costs. So up to 50%, somewhat similar to the um, house bill, but I think generally, um, especially because the house bill was so prescriptive on exactly which coal plants would be retired and by when, and also of course, prescriptive on what would replace them. Um, people, I haven't heard a lot of concerns about that piece. Um, the third section also allows, uh, the commission to create a rulemaking on um, an on-bill financing program for energy efficiency improvements. And then finally, the, um, the bill also would allow a one-time 10-year extension of existing contracts under uh, PERPA, the Public Utility Regulatory Policy Act. I'm sure your members, if they didn't know that's what it was called, and I don't even know if that is what it's called, but I think that's what it is, uh, but I'm sure your listeners know PERPA. Anyway, so there are these all these grandfathered um, PERPA projects that are, that are still around that would allow them an extension and potentially a um, lower cost, um, so good for everyone. So those are, the, those are the highlights. I think the, you know, uh, for sure the kind of two major things you would have to say it does is, you know, sets these carbon goals into into law and then allows a different kind of rate making um, for Duke. So looking at the, the big picture here as it relates to renewables in the state, um, especially with aspects like the continuation of the CPRE and the uh, independent power producers split ownership program, along with, as you just mentioned, uh, the extension of PPAs under PURPA. What does it mean for renewables in our state, right? We've seen some some big waves when it comes to development of utility-scale solar. Um, so for, for somebody that's a developer, what can they expect in North Carolina over the next couple of years? Yeah, I mean, I think a whole lot depends on the commission and, you know, what plan they develop and and how they roll it out. But I think almost certainly it's going to mean a whole lot of solar energy and solar plus storage and especially because that is the one place where um you know independent power producers can be part of that market can get 45 percent of of whatever's built under the um to to fulfill the carbon plan you know that's a place where they can compete and do stuff um i think that um you know if we if and renewable energy advocates wildest dreams um you know you not only you get double or triple solar you could get 10 times the amount of land-based wind we have today um a substantial amount more of of offshore wind at least the size of the kitty hawk project that's that's being developed um and you know we could see something like 11 gigawatts of, of battery storage um again if we're really limiting gas inputs and um, retiring coal plants early. But I, I do think it's worth noting that, um, you know, Duke has also presented uh, 
potential pathway to achieving 70% reductions to the Utilities Commission that has um, six gigawatts of new gas. It has over one gigawatt of small modular nuclear reactors and, you know, no offshore wind. Um, so, you know, there are, there are ways to achieve 70% reductions in the near term while um, building new gas and potentially stranding these assets. On the other hand, those costs are for the most part, those resources are for the most part higher cost than um, certainly solar and increasingly, um, uh, you know, all these other renewable costs are coming down as well. So um, I I think for sure we're going to see some kind of transformation and some huge injection of renewable energy um, into into the picture here. But there's a lot we don't know yet about um, exactly which renewables will be developed. And um, because Duke is able to, because not able, because Duke must own um, such a huge amount of them, we don't know how much that's going to, you know, are they going to, we know they build projects uh, at costs that are higher than independent producers generally. Um, so we don't know how that's going to um, square with the commission either. So. Um, a lot of potential and a lot's going to depend on the commission. Uh, small module nuclear, nuclear reactors somehow <laughs> just continue to come up in conversation over and over again. Um, but it is, it is noteworthy uh, that there is not a carve out in this new bill for innovation and research as it relates to small modular nuclear reactors. So there's not a specific call out in this new version of the bill, which is, is noteworthy. Um, so let's let's take a, a step back, uh, Julie. So how did how did this agreement come about between the governor's office and legislative leaders? Was this new bill issued as a direct response to many of the stakeholder groups across the state who previously ex- expressed opposition to the original version of the bill, as we covered in a previous episode with Brianna over at Ceres and the the corporate opposition to that previous version of the bill? Absolutely. Um, and I think, you know, over not just this year, but over the last couple of years, um, you know, it really started with back in 2016, 2017, with the development of kind of the last big clean energy bill, House Bill 589, that, um, you know, set up a lot of these original um, customer programs and the CPRE, um, Competitive Procurement for Renewable Energy program that Elizabeth just mentioned, um, 589 in 2017 was really the first step, I think, um, in so many different electricity customers engaging at the legislature and educating our elected officials on these very complex technical issues that, you know, thank God our Utilities Commission um, deals with on a daily basis because they are extremely, you know, technical and, you know, especially with with so many newer technologies changing so quickly these days with, with solar and wind and, you know, hydrogen and carbon capture and, you know, across the board, outside, you know, all across different energy sources. Um, the commission, you know, above all else, I'm glad that legislators throughout these negotiations have have given, you know, more leeway, more authority um, to the Utilities Commission, which is full-time energy experts, 
and you know is basically a, a permanent location for stakeholders to engage customers to engage um you know so i i think above all else you know with this this new agreement that's been, just been reached and announced over the last week um you know they took like elizabeth said a nearly 50 page bill that i think went through like or went to like excruciating detail in you know outlining and mandating issue by issue step by step and the shorter version of the bill um, really does, you know, cover a lot of very important, still very technical, far-reaching issues um, that impact every single, you know, electricity customer in North Carolina. But it gives that discretion and authority to the Utilities Commission, which, you know, if or when Governor Cooper signs House Bill 951 into law in the next, you know, 10 or 11 days, um, I think everybody can agree that, um, you know, the Dobbs building in downtown Raleigh is probably going to be one of the busiest buildings in, in downtown Raleigh. Um, you know, not, not just the, the work that the Utilities Commission is, is going to have to, you know, start literally within, um, you know, weeks on these important issues, but, you know, the usual groups like NCSEA and Manufacturers Alliance and and other um, customer groups, environmental groups that you know normally usually intervene in these issues before the commission, but you know I think we're also seeing a lot of newer faces, you know from the corporates that have you know hundred percent renewable energy goals to the manufacturers that are still looking for you know least cost for their operations. Um, all coming together to ensure this bill is implemented as effectively as it can, you know, in the coming weeks and months. So that really excites me, you know, that that new opportunity for more of those customer voices to engage. My impression from talking to the, you know, especially the Senate Democrats who were part of the negotiating team on this bill is that they were certainly... Um, talking to all the stakeholders who'd, who'd raised concerns about the House passed version of the bill and they were um, getting that input. But m- my sense is that the Senate Democratic Caucus, the um, Senate Republican Caucus, and, and Cooper's office, they were really driving this train in a way that I think is um, different than some of the major energy policies we've seen in the past where certainly lawmakers were involved, but they were kind of overseeing this discussion and trying to force agreement and force consensus. Whereas um, this was very much, you know, lawmakers tell me kind of a back and forth. They're like, okay, how about do this thing for low income customers? Okay, that's rejected. How about this? You know, they, you know, how about we get up something for wind, you know, back and forth, back and forth, you know, Duke trying to own all of the new generation, et cetera, et cetera. And I think, you know, the Republicans really wanted to satisfy Duke's um, desire for multi-year rate making. And um, one senator told me they were threatening to put that in the budget. Um, And the Senate Democrats really saw an opportunity to try and get um, Governor Cooper's clean energy goals and carbon reduction goals codified into law 
and and felt like even though there you know you you heard a million times during the debate yesterday and today that the bill isn't perfect the bill isn't perfect but i think they really felt like this was a chance that this was an opportunity that might not come again and so they wanted to take it and since you you mentioned that that last bit about uh codifying governor cooper's emissions goals um the bill instructs the north carolina utilities commission to take all reasonable steps to reaching a 70 percent emissions cut from the power sector by the end of the decade as as you mentioned a little bit earlier um under that section of the bill it specifically outlines next steps the utilities commission should take in achieving that goal uh, Julie, can you talk a little bit more about those next steps specifically that the Utilities Commission will take? And I know you alluded to it a little bit earlier by saying work's going to start within the next couple of weeks because there is a lot of work and a lot of stakeholders that are very interested in how this conversation will play out down at the Utilities Commission. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I'll, I'll first, you know, I think a lot of people are, are jumping immediately to the next step. Um, and I, I think it was... John Downey with the Charlotte Business Journal that uh, had in one of his stories over the last few days that, you know, having, like Elizabeth said, you know, the 70% goal, carbon reduction goal by 2030 and carbon neutral by 2050, um, even though, you know, there are a growing number of governors that are, you know, setting those goals by executive order or utilities setting those internal goals, um, North Carolina is is definitely the first state in in the southeast to pass a law like this, um, putting those carbon reduction goals in law in statute, and and one of just a handful across the country. Um, so I think you know that in and of itself um, reflects that this is a major step forward um, in terms of clean energy access for um, customers. Um, you know, and, and all of the work that's going to, you know, unfold um, and start very quickly. Um, you know, so just wanted to, you know, mention that again. Um, but yeah, the, the Utilities Commission, um, some of the different provisions, programs, um, sections of this bill do set out um, very specific um, three or four month kind of time clocks for these issues to um, be opened up and, and started um, at the Utilities Commission. Uh, Elizabeth mentioned, um, you know, it also directs the, the North Carolina Utilities Commission to um, start a stakeholder process with, with stakeholders, with the utility to develop now through the end of 2022, a new carbon plan for North Carolina. Um, and it also gives the, the commission the authority to um, approve or allow um, new solar programs, um, such as a, a short-term um, bridge, if you will, for for the CPRE competitive procurement of renewable energy, um, possibly another tranche of those large-scale solar projects um, that could be, you know, that discussion could start uh, quite, you know, quite quickly, um, and could be approved before that carbon plan submitted by the end of um, December 2022. Um, so there's going to be a lot of very important issues um, that are going to, you know, ramp up and get started at the commission um, very soon. So 
I am I am curious, just because we we did go through a stakeholder process around the clean energy plan last year, with one of the stakeholder groups being specifically focused on uh, carbon reduction. Um, do we do we think there are going to be a lot of parallels between that group and its findings, and what's going to happen at the utilities commission? Or any of those findings going to directly come over to this group? Are there going to be similar stakeholders involved? Does the bill itself call out the specific stakeholders who should be in the room at the Utilities Commission? I don't believe so, but um, because a lot of the same stakeholder groups, different customer perspectives, um, you know, different business sectors, as well as legislators, Governor Cooper's administration, as well as the Utilities Commission and the public staff, a lot of these people have been involved in all of these very similar convenings, discussions over the last, you know, two or three years. So I certainly hope that they pick up on the great work and discussions and agreements uh, that have been reached over the last few years and just, you know, pass the baton and, you know, it just starts an easier process that we don't have to, you know, take any steps back. We just, you know, move ahead. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And there's been a lot of great work done, as we've highlighted in previous episodes, where we've talked about the A1 and B1 reports that came out of those stakeholder processes. So uh, hopefully we see some of that resurfaced, as there were a number of recommendations in there specifically for the Utilities Commission as well to take up here in North Carolina. Um, so we we had alluded to it a little bit earlier on this episode. The, the bill you know, still comes with some of its own concerns. Uh, and there are still some stakeholder groups uh, that, that are opposed to the bill. So, Elizabeth, can you walk us through some of the provisions of the bill that are raising eyebrows amongst some of the stakeholders? Sure. And I will say that I think in part because of the dynamic I described earlier, where this was really a negotiation between the governor's office and the um, Senate Democrats and Senate Republicans, I think for sure there are people who have come out opposed and guns a blazing, but a lot of folks have issued statements just talking about the nice things and the bad things in this bill and, and sort of have not have sort of resigned themselves to the bill's fate. Um, anyway, just a small point there. But um, I think there's, I would say there's sort of three main concerns. One is, is there's the, in some of there. Perhaps it's intentional, perhaps it's a drafting error, we don't know, but um, there's concern that um, in some cases Duke seems to have as much say over the fate of the carbon plan as the commission, um, and there are ways in which Duke might be able to wiggle out of, of meeting the timelines and the targets. And so, so basically concerns about loopholes and ambiguities that for the most part, uh, bill sponsors have said are not um, intended and not, um, and, you know, don't reflect the actual compromise, but um, there's still some serious concern about it and still some resistance on the part of um, Senator Paul Newton to address those concerns by, say, entertaining an amendment <laughs> or, um, you know, uh, even, and so anyway, still to this day, we don't know 
will there be what's called a technical corrections bill to address some of those concerns? And I think, um, so that's one thing, just loopholes, ambiguities, errors, that's one problem people have. The second is the sort of hunkering down and the doubling down on Duke's monopoly. Um, you know, have the company being able to own 55% of the solar and every other energy, renewable energy developed under this, this bill is a, is a big concern. And they, um, in part because, um, you know, it, it hurts the, for example, in offshore wind, it could really hurt the ability, the development of other opportunities within the supply chain. There's some belief that um, independent private developers are, are better at sort of trying to win over community support by um, helping with updating the port and um, doing other things to help stimulate economic development and job creation. Um, and then there's also just the concern about cost, that Duke is going to do it more expensively than would independent power producers. And what's that going to mean for the impact on rates? And what's that going to mean about, the, you know, is that going to impede the ability to to really um, get to that net zero target in the way that climate scientists say that, that we need to, which is by you know, weaning ourselves off of fossil fuels as much as humanly possible. So um, Duke's monopoly is a second big concern. And then um, the third and, and somewhat related is, is just the number of environmental groups are, are really committed to a just clean energy transition and ensuring that um, Poor people who are disproportionately people of color um, are getting the benefits of clean energy and not having to bear the, the brunt of the costs of, of the clean energy transition. And so there's a concern that between the multi-year rate making plan, which could you know, allow the utility to earn millions in extra earnings um, in a given year, um, the, the monopoly potentially increasing costs, and then the uh, this on-bill financing program is the one kind of sop to low-income um, customer advocates. They don't believe that's really enough to offset the potential costs um, that this bill could impose. So um, those are the big concerns. So I think you've seen most of the environmental groups either a couple of, uh, I've at least seen one say, hooray, you know, we need to get these goals into law and this is good but um, for the most part environmental groups are um, issuing those concerns um, a couple of the one of the major large um, ratepayer groups the Carolina Utility Customers Association um, which is sort of arose out of um, textile mills um, when it was first created um, their um, Opposed, and then um, the Justice Center, which advocates on um, behalf of low-income people, is also opposed. Um, but I think that you know, again, even the even the folks who have issued their um, full-throated statements of opposition have um, they all know that this thing was cooked. Once you get the major political leaders in the state to come to agreement, they kind of realize there's not much they can do, and so most of them are. I think really pushing to try and get this technical corrections piece done so that the ambiguities are solved and then kind of resolved to take their concerns to the commission. Yeah. So that, that leads in really well to my next question here. Um, so what, what are the next steps for this bill? What's the likelihood that it passes and 
what are the latest updates? I know as of recording today on October 7th, we have some some updates uh, that happened earlier this morning. So Julie, do you want to catch us up on where we go next here? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I completely agree with everything Elizabeth just went through. Uh, so uh, yeah, a lot has happened in the last uh, literally 24 hours um, from where we're taping this. Um, the, the North Carolina House passed the bill um, this morning and the state Senate passed it yesterday. Um, overwhelming support in both chambers, um, bipartisan support in both chambers. Um, the, the vote yesterday in the Senate was 42 to seven. Um, one Republican, six Democrats voting uh, no, everybody else in favor of it. Um, in, in the House this morning um, was uh, approved by um, a vote of 90 to 20. Um, with uh, about half and half um, Democrats and Republicans in that um, 20 votes against the bill. Um, so now it is um, transitioning from the, the legislative building and um, taking a quick uh, walk down to the, the governor's office um, about a block away. And um, once the bill lands on the governor's desk, um, since they're still in session, he'll have 10 days to, to sign, veto, or let it uh, become law without his signature. Um, and like you said, uh, last Friday when this agreement was, was announced, um, we did see um, the very, very rare occurrence of the governor, um, Republican and Democratic leaders in the House and Senate issuing a joint statement of support for this agreement. So I think everyone um, is uh, assuming that the governor is going to sign it. Um, so we just have to wait and see um, when that exactly takes place in the next few days. Um, and I think, you know, the, the next very important step that, that I'm also keeping a very close eye on, um, like Elizabeth mentioned, um, during the debate um, yesterday and today, um, in the House and Senate, there was a lot of legislators, Democrats and Republicans, um, pointing out the need for additional clarifications on some of the provisions um, in House Bill 951. So waiting to see if um, the next important step in the legislative process, if we do see a technical corrections bill um, to, to address some of these, these issues. Um, and, and finally, as Elizabeth mentioned, um, there was, there has been over the last week or so, a lot of, um, comments from both sides of the aisle, um, on the fact that there were not included in the bill, um, more stronger, um, programs targeted to low and middle income families, more, um, you know, legit, stronger energy efficiency programs. Um, that would help with the, the growing energy burden for low and middle income customers. Um, and, you know, that was discussed um, in each of the committee meetings and in yesterday's and this morning's floor votes uh, debates um, in the House and Senate. So, you know, I'm very curious to see um, what comes out of, of that potential technical corrections bill, as well as, you know, additional conversations and, and action, hopefully around those low and moderate income um, focused uh, programs. Yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned that. I, I really do hope that there are some additional considerations made for low and moderate income communities and 
especially as this translates over to the Utilities Commission um, with you know the public staff and, and the various stakeholders that are involved and different programs are proposed and put together, um, that there are specific programs implemented uh, to make sure that all communities across the state are able to benefit as we move into this next uh, era of energy here in North Carolina. Um, so with that, I want to thank you both so much for joining us on this episode of the Squeaky Clean Energy podcast and giving us the lowdown on HB 951. There's been a lot going on, and I'm sure in a week from now, there'll be even more going on. So uh, we'll definitely be following uh, your reporting on this, Elizabeth, and uh, we'll share a link uh, in the show notes with the latest reporting on where the bill currently stands and where stakeholders currently stand on it. Um, but thank you both so much for joining us today. Thanks so much, Elizabeth. Thanks so much for having me. And thank you, Julie. Always a pleasure. My key takeaway from today's episode is compromise, as is the customary norm when it comes to policymaking. As we heard from Elizabeth and Julie today, this new version of HB 951 is a big step forward in codifying the governor's emissions reduction goals by establishing one of the Southeast's first carbon standards. It also includes a number of provisions that will help to accelerate the deployment of renewables over the next couple of years. However, there are still some problematic provisions that are entailed in this compromise, including the reinforcement of the existing energy monopoly regulatory structure, lack of customer protections from over-earnings under the new multi-year rate plan structure, and the solar ownership split with the utility. Stay tuned though, because as of recording this episode, the bill has not yet been signed by the governor. NCSEA will continue to provide updates on this bill as it makes its way over to the governor for his signature. And as conversation ensues about the next steps of implementing the provisions established under this bill. And you know the deal. Let's stay in touch on Twitter. Give me a shout at Matt Abel for future episode ideas, questions for our next episode, thoughts on today's episode, and your worst energy joke one-liners. Episode 57 of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast is in the books. But before you leave, don't forget to rate, subscribe, and share the pod on whatever platform you're listening in from. Sharing this podcast with your network and growing the friends of the pod helps us get just a little bit closer to our shared vision of a clean energy economy for North Carolina. All right, that's it. See you all later.